Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome to episode 50 of Devotions in the Deep End. At this stage of the podcast project, I would like to thank all of you for hanging with me in the journey. I am loving the support from every state in my native land of Australia, but I also want to acknowledge the significant and growing audience who are faithfully listening in from the United States, 16 states thus far. I don't know who all of you are, but I would love to hear from you and learn how you found this podcast in the first place. I would also really appreciate those who listen on Apple Podcasts if you would perhaps write a review to inform others on what they could expect. Anyway, let's move into the content. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Note that word tradition there. And we will keep on reading. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into your mouth does not defile you, but what comes out of your mouth, that is what defiles you. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these defile you. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile you, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile you. So Jesus is ministering likely near Gennesaret or Capernaum, and a delegation from down in Jerusalem has made the big trip to see him. We read that it's a religious group made up of Pharisaic leaders and some religious legal experts. One would hope it was to see more of the work Jesus was doing. The feeding of the 5,000 was clearly a messianic statement, and perhaps they were starting to come around. Instead, it was a delegation coming to discuss, well, personal hygiene, or so it might read on the surface anyway. We know that Jesus has been carefully watched for some time now. Every action, every word, and every crowd reaction has been carefully made note of, seemingly right down to the way Jesus and his disciples ate their food. This is because there actually was a prescribed way to go about doing that, and it continues to be a practice among some in the Jewish community even today. Through a set liturgy, 
you would eat ceremonially clean food with ceremonially clean hands. Part of the liturgy was to wash, say a blessing, and not say anything more until the first bite was taken. However, it appears Jesus and his crew were answering invitations to come to people's homes. And when the food was laid out and the host had gone to do this washing process, well, Jesus and his disciples would remain at the table ready to eat already. I am certain Jesus and his disciples would be polite guests. The frequent invitations they received certainly indicates this would have to be the case. But they were clearly not married to the prescribed liturgy that preceded the meal. These Jerusalem leaders might have been thinking that perhaps this issue was the beginning of a slippery slope. In fact, at this stage behind closed doors, there was hope among some that it actually was. So as the opposition starts, the Pharisees and the scribes begin to call Jesus out on his religious activities, starting with what they think is one of the basics. Hey Jesus, before you and your guys eat, you don't wash your hands. That's a blatant disregard for our tradition right there, don't you think? There's that word tradition that I asked you to note as we read the passage. The traditions of the elders referred to in verse 2 was a rather large body of oral teaching from different rabbis concerning the law of God. It was an attempt to explain moral and ceremonial laws and make things easier to follow. It wasn't a unified approach by any means, and rabbis would sometimes compete with each other over who could come up with the best interpretation and whom they could convince with their reason. A bit of theological point scoring, if you will. In Jesus' day, and even beyond, it was the subject of much dispute, and none of it was really collated into anything serviceable until well into the second century. Some of the conclusions led to rather complex outcomes which added to the burden of those trying to keep them. Yet despite the fact these traditions were largely unwritten and inconsistent and more burdensome on the people, the Pharisees had elevated them to an inappropriately high place. The traditions were revered and upheld in great detail. But the Torah, the Old Testament law, was more loosely upheld. It was being proclaimed to the people, but filtered through these competitive and inconsistent interpretations of the rabbis, instead of simply calling people to follow the law on its own merit. With this in mind, consider the tone of these leaders as they speak with Jesus. Our passage says they ask why he and his disciples would go and break tradition. Incredibly, the Greek word for break actually means to transgress or commit an act of sin. So Jesus and his disciples are being accused here of actual sin, determined not by the word of God itself, but by a supplementary collection of human rules and law. Hopefully, you're as gobsmacked as I am at just how ludicrous that accusation was. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't back down from this discussion, and we see this clearly in his answer. You are accusing me of sin based on a subjective and burdensome man-made tradition. In response, I will call you out on your disregard for the word of God. You have traditions. I have commands. Ones you conveniently forget in order to make room for your traditions. Jesus' two case studies in his answers come from Exodus chapters 20 and 21. The first case study is simple, one of the Ten Commandments, to honor one's father and mother. This means to hold parents in high esteem. And going by Jesus' talk here, this extends to their ongoing welfare. 
there wasn't an aged pension to claim or nursing homes to send your aged relatives to. It was up to the next in line to provide for them and allow for them to see out their years in safety, dignity and comfort. This was a command from God and one not to be taken lightly. In the case of Exodus 21, the Lord went on to say that any Israelite who had cursed their parents, who would cause them public shame or humiliation, would actually be subject to the death penalty. So if the Pharisees wanted to do right by God's standard, then surely they had enough information before them in these instances. In these case studies from Jesus, the scripture is sufficient. There's really no need for the traditions of the elders to offer further clarity. But what if a first century Pharisee didn't want to part with their money or didn't want to provide for their parents that way? What if a Pharisee was too obsessed with doing Pharisee stuff to make time and space for that sort of commitment? Well, as luck would have it, there was this thing in their oral tradition which did make a way for them. One of their rabbis once taught a concept called Corbin, and it was loosely based on Leviticus chapter 27. If you made a vow to the Lord concerning personal property being promised to God in some way or another, it would be deemed sacred or Corbin. This is what Jesus is referring to in verse 5 when he criticizes the things they were calling devoted to God. You could take your savings and make a Corbin vow with it. Then it was deemed sacred and tradition taught that you could even renege on your responsibilities to your aged parents by simply allocating your spare cash and assets as Corbin. In other words, it's not my money anymore. Technically, it's now God's. Sorry, Mum. Sorry, Dad. Adding insult to injury, this tradition actually allowed you to then hold on to that vowed money and asset until you saw fit to hand it over. It would remain technically sacred and God's, but you were still permitted to spend it on whatever you liked until you handed it over. It sounded godly by giving it a name and it let a Pharisee get their own way. Well, at least until this confrontation when Jesus calls them out on it. In response to this deception, he repeats something spoken 700 years prior in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Sadly, everything the people knew about God and worship was now coming primarily from human teachers and the opinions of the rabbis and other religious teachers. The word of God was present, but only in the synagogues really by this time. The Torah, the law and instruction of God wasn't the stuff being recited in homes and everyday life anymore. The oral tradition was. In the first century, the Pharisees watched everyone carefully and their deliberate presence drove home the point that their traditions had to be adhered to. It was their voice in the head of the people, and the voice of God had become a very distant and even diluted second. The result is devastating when you think about it. Every element of worship and religious experience that Israel observed was now being done to appease religious people rather than seeking to please God. Israel acknowledged God as his deity, but in reality they were nowhere near him. They had gotten deeply entrenched in Pharisaic tradition, no longer aware that it was now nullifying scripture in the process. They were becoming more and more divorced from God's spoken word. When humanized religious tradition overrides God-breathed scripture, when the voice of man is louder than the voice of God, when human control supersedes the freedom of God in the way we express worship, 
you will always end up with a lifeless, powerless, Pharisaic expression. Jesus had a word for these Pharisees because of what they promoted. He had a word for the way they twisted things into something to suit themselves with no regard for the welfare of those around them. He had a word for those who would claim allegiance with God, but live in such a way as to distort the things he said to suit themselves. Jesus calls them play actors, ones who would wear a mask to denote a specific character different to their own. The Greek word is hypocrites. Our English word is hypocrite. And Jesus can't help but bring correction to this sort of mindset. Now, after taking a pretty hard swing at the Pharisees, the discussion eventually moves to the disciples in private. And we read that the disciples are pretty shaken. They know Jesus pokes and bears in this interaction, and they begin to speak to him about this. Hey, Jesus, you know you really offended those guys in spectacular fashion just now, right? This too is a question that Jesus doesn't shy away from, labeling the Pharisees and religious experts blind guides. It's yet another descriptive word added to the yeasty ones two episodes ago. Between that episode and now, we see that Jesus' view on these inept shepherds of Israel is incredibly clear. The second question from Peter, the request for more explanation, gives Jesus a chance to set things back to their rightful place. Fallible human tradition replaced the infallible word of God, and an obsession with getting the outward actions right had caused the heart of a nation to remain defiled. The outward observances of tradition had created a false sense of spiritual security. If you think about it, anyone could do these things. Anyone could tick the boxes. Even the most insincere person in the ancient Jewish community could dot the I's and cross the T's of Israel's religious system and walk away somehow convinced that their standing with God was intact. And sadly, they could do it all without knowing a single word of scripture. So Jesus dismisses the traditions by explaining that external defilement before God is actually impossible. The tradition of washing, then saying the blessing, then saying nothing until the first bite, gave the erroneous implication that they were being diligent in not allowing evil or defilement in. But Jesus shows us that such diligence and ceremony really makes no difference in the scheme of things, because our heart is already full of defilement, and it didn't sneak in there when we forgot to wash our hands. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that not a single one of us is in a perfect, righteous state before God. And this is simply because all of mankind is born into sin. And all of us are carriers of a sinful nature. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart of mankind is incurably deceitful above all things. Jesus confirms that by explaining that our heart produces these evil things. It produces evil thoughts and inclinations. It produces murderous capacities. Remember that Jesus has already taught us that hatred is where that starts. It produces sexual sin, again starting with that first lustful glance. It produces all sorts of dishonesty and theft and slander. Allowing those things to go unaddressed will cause a person to become defiled, and no man-made religious observation could wash away that defilement. The genuine answers to being made righteous are found in God's unambiguous word, not tradition. The tools the first century Jews needed to pursue inner purity and righteousness was clearly present in the scrolls that were gathering dust in the synagogues and only pulled out on a Saturday. More importantly, the depth of God's heart for the people and his emphasis of mercy, justice, love, and endless grace was found there too. The very origin of Israel's religious expression was based entirely on faith, trust, love, and simple obedience. 
Abraham was declared righteous simply because of his faith in God's promises, and Genesis 15 and James 2 confirm this. Before all of the rules, there was a people of God, and they were doing quite fine. The law that came through Moses actually was set in place to point to man's frailty and to eventually save the whole world from itself, with Jesus being the completer of it. All the Pharisees needed to do was to present the word and instruction of God to the people, because out of that alone came their salvation and an authentic basis for genuine worship. But Israel didn't know a word of it, because the inconsistent, competing, self-serving, and as Jesus puts it, hypocritical traditions of the rabbis got in the way. These traditions led a nation completely astray, and people walked in false security and complete ignorance. At this point, Jesus says, enough is enough. Now, there are a few challenges that we can take out of this passage for ourselves. First, a large number of good, precious people who believe in God and attend church know more about tradition, liturgy, and ceremony than they do the Word of God. They can quote hymnals and make them gospel. They can recite liturgical prayers and creeds, but not Bible verses. They can quote church leaders of the Reformation, but not the leaders who wrote the New Testament. They can quote all sorts of men and women, but not Jesus. When we know our traditions more than Scripture, we slip into the dangerous territory of having those things form the basis of our faith and worship rather than their source. After decades of ministry, I'm finding something to be eerily true. Too many church folk don't have a scriptural basis for what they believe, how they observe their faith, and what can be called genuine worship and devotion. Having a good grasp on what the Bible says and what it means really does matter. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. No other source has that degree of authority over us. Second, let's not get so concerned with outward things that we ignore what's going on inside. We can say the right things in public places. We can do the right rituals and attend the right places at the right times. As a result, people around us and even our pastors and leaders might think all is good. But what would Jesus say to you right now about the state of things? In particular, what is going on in your heart? Is there hatred or envy or jealousy or rage? Is there lust or impure intent? Is selfishness residing in there or something else that is equally unclean? That's where defilement begins. But it doesn't have to remain that way. To hide them away is hypocrisy. And Jesus clearly has no time for that. But to come clean with these things before Jesus, and sometimes even before others in a spirit of transparency, will lead to a healing of these things. And finally, are you looking for technicalities to justify bad behavior or poor moral or ethical choices? The technicality of the Pharisee was tradition, but we can be equally inventive with our excuses when we're stuck in disobedience. Let the Word of God speak for itself unambiguously over your life and find the blessed life when you follow it fully and without distortion. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I look forward to catching up next time. See you then.